The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. While people were listening to Jesus speak, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God would appear there immediately. And so he said, a nobleman went off to a distant country to obtain the kingship for himself and then to return. He called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 gold coins and told them, Engage in trade with these until I return. His fellow citizens, however, despised him and sent a delegation after him to announce, We do not want this man to be our king. But when he returned after obtaining the kingship, he had the servants call to whom he had given the money to learn what they had gained by trading. The first came forward and said, Sir, your gold coin has earned ten additional ones. He replied, Well done, good servant. You have been faithful in this very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. Then the second came and reported, Your gold coin, sir, has earned five more. And to this servant, too, he said, You, take charge of five cities. Then the other servant came and said, Sir, here is your gold coin. I kept it stored away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a demanding man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you harvest what you did not plant. He said to him, With your own words I shall condemn you, you wicked servant. You knew I was a demanding man, taking up what I did not lay down, and harvesting what I did not plant. Why did you not put my money in a bank? Then on my return I would have collected it with interest. And to those standing by, he said, Take the gold coin from him and give it to the servant who has ten. But they said to him, Sir, he has ten gold coins. And he replied, I tell you to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, as for those enemies of mine who did not want me as their king, bring them here and slay them before me. After he had said this, he proceeded on his journey up to Jerusalem. The Gospel of the Lord. Our first reading and our gospel reading both have the note about them today of let me show you what is going to happen. In fact, those are pretty much the exact words 
that the author of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, hears as he says, I saw a door opened in heaven and I heard the voice. And the voice said, come up here and I will show you what is going to happen. And that's a remarkable incident in the book of Revelation, which we often mistakenly reduce to a mere series of predictions about how history will unfold. But notice that there's nothing about the unfolding of histories and calamities of earth right now in this reading. Let me show you what is going to happen. And we are given not a lesson in the future of the earth directly, we are given a look, a look, and we could hear it in the reading how language breaks down. It is unable to really describe what is happening. And we want to be careful as we listen to texts like this. We have to recognize a vision like this goes so far beyond what the human mind can comprehend that it is going to grope for words, grope for images, and we, even as then details are placed in the text for us to consider, we have to recognize how overwhelming this is and how the, all of these details point far beyond themselves to an even greater reality. And what do we see? Let me show you what is going to happen, and the answer is God is praised in heaven. Think about that for a moment. That's usually not the thing we're interested in hearing. We want to hear about, well, when are the calamities coming? And when does the light show start as everything blows up? And what about that bit about the angel and the trumpet? Where does that fit? That's what we're looking to hear. Let me show you what is going to happen, and we see something else. And in that what is going to happen, it is not merely a statement of God sitting on his throne and people are happy. Rather, in this odd language that the apostle uses as he records what he sees, there are a number of curious elements. Because again, we think in categories of time, of before and after and here and there. And yet what's being described defeats all of that. Know what he says. There are these four living creatures before the throne and they have eyes on the outside and eyes on the inside. And like, how would he even know that? And there's this image then of four creatures that see everything the exterior and the interior. They know themselves perfectly. They know the outside perfectly. But they, the eyes are everywhere, and they are always seeing. What an odd image. You know, creatures that have covered with eyes, but have different heads. And they see everything, and continually, meaning without stopping, they are singing the praises of the one who is on the throne. Four creatures that see all, 
And in that seeing of everything, they also see God. They see everything in light of their position before the throne. And before the throne, they are continually singing the praises of the one who reigns there. But then we hear about these 12 other thrones that are set up around the big throne. The 12, 24 thrones. And the guy's in white with the crowns on him, and know what he says. And whenever they did this, and so we're thinking, okay, the creatures sing their song. And note how odd this is. And the 24 guys all get up from their throne, fall down, and then throw their crowns down. But the singing never stops. And so note, these guys are never on their thrones. They're always getting up, always falling down, always taking the gold crown they were given and throwing it down before the one who is on the throne. What an odd picture. And we said, there's like, physically, how is this even possible? And what we see then is there's something here that is transcending the merely physical in this description of the praise of the creatures, the response of the elders on the thrones. And all of this happening around the throne that is occupied by the Lord. And what do we see? There are those who are given completely over to the praise of God. And those on the thrones, their glory is the fact that they are always prostrating themselves, always surrendering the glory they have been given back to the one who has given it. Note the image of heaven here. Note the image of victory here. Note the image of glory here. And that this is not an intermittent series of actions, but something that is constantly, continually, and regularly happening. And now, having said that, because my favorite class in school is show and tell, <laughs> and as we draw near to the end of our liturgical year, this coming Sunday is the feast of Christ the King of the universe. What do we see? The Lord enthroned as king. The Lord enthroned as king, and we see four creatures around the throne. Just like we heard in our reading. And one of the creatures has the face of a lion. And another the face of an ox or a calf. And another the face of a man. And another, the face of an eagle. Now, isn't that interesting? Four creatures around the throne of Christ the King. These four creatures, traditionally and historically, have been recognized as symbolizing the four Gospels. Those four books testifying to the fullness of the truth in Jesus Christ in which the word of God, like an eye, sees deeply and continually into what is within us 
and what is outside of us. The gospel speaks to everything. The gospel sees everything. And note that in the light of the gospel, we have an eye that can see clearly within us, and we have an eye that can see clearly the world around us. And what is the fruit of learning how to see with that eye in the light of these gospels? It is to truly begin to see and to recognize and respond to the glory of the King. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Note how marvelous this is. How marvelous this is, these traditional symbols. There'll be a quiz on this later, so pay attention. The symbol of the lion, the Gospel of St. Mark. The symbol of the calf or the ox, the Gospel of St. Luke. The symbol of the man, the Gospel of St. Matthew. And the symbol of the eagle, the Gospel of St. John. And these are traditionally ascribed to the Gospels because of how the Gospels begin. The sacrifice in the temple at the beginning of St. Luke. The roar of St. John the Baptist at the beginning of St. Mark. The human origin of Jesus in the Gospel of St. Matthew. And the soaring height of the word with God who swoops to earth in his incarnation in the Gospel of St. John. The gospel sees everything. The gospel speaks to everything. And that is why, then, this parable that Jesus tells has a particular bite to it. And note how the thrust of this parable is about a king and a throne, too. And so the context for this parable, as St. Luke lays it out for us, is very important. Jesus is leaving Jericho, where we saw him yesterday in the reading. And he's on his way to Jerusalem, where he is coming into his kingdom. And he is aware of what people are thinking. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Maybe he's the Messiah, and the kingdom of God will be given to Israel now. And so Jesus speaks into that expectation that finally what we've been waiting for is going to happen. But he does it in this surprising way. You're waiting for the king to come. Let's talk about that, he says. So note how he begins. There was a man who is going to leave so that he can receive the kingship. This is Jesus now saying, let me tell you what is going to happen. And now we're expecting he's going to tell us about the parade on Palm Sunday. And we're expecting he's going to tell us about the great things he's going to do. And yet, what he wants to tell us about what will happen is a bit more challenging and a bit more troubling because it's not merely a matter of satisfying our curiosity about the details. And so one is going, and he is going to claim the kingship. But before he leaves, he calls a number of his servants to himself, he says. And to those servants he trusts a certain amount of his wealth. 
And then he leaves. And while he's leaving, the people over whom he will have authority decide they'd rather have another guy. And so now, note what Jesus is implying here. I'm a king who will not necessarily be popular with everyone. And there are going to be those who will resist and oppose and seek to thwart the legitimate rule of the king. But he goes. And the servants are left in this ambiguous area. Note, they're the servants of the guy who's going to become king, living where nobody wants the guy to be king. And so they are given the wealth of the Lord in a context where the Lord is opposed. And they have to do something with it. How curious an example this is. And the example gets even more curious when we find out that there will be a day when the master comes back and he will, in fact, be the king. Regardless of the opinion of those who wanted him or didn't want him, when he returns, he will, in fact, be the king with all of the authority, all of the status, all of the power that that truly implies. And, and, you know, and again, note the other implication. There's no consultation on this. The delegation that says we'd rather somebody else is ignored, overruled. The king has been chosen. It will be the one who goes to claim the crown, and it will not be somebody else. There is no other alternative candidate. And so he returns, and on his return, he calls those whom he has trusted to himself so that they can give an account of what they have done with his wealth that he placed in their hands. And one by one, they come forward. And here's the other odd dimension of the story. If you listened carefully today, you would have heard and he summoned ten servants to himself and gave them ten coins. But then we only see three guys. What about the other seven? Figure out which one of those seven you are. Note, ten are trusted and three are immediately called to an accounting. And the implication is that there's other servants trusted with something and the day will come, too, when they likewise appear before the king, who's going to say, not merely were you good or were you bad, but what did you do with the treasure I entrusted to your keeping? Because it's not yours. It's mine. And so note, the first one comes forward and he says, in this difficult world where no one wants to respect you, where no one wants to acknowledge your authority, in this difficult world, the ten that you've given me have produced ten more. The wealth that you gave me worked 
through me and in me. In your service and has added to your kingdom. Note how marvelous this is. Note the implication. The wealth of the kingdom expands by means of the wealth that the king has entrusted to his servants when they use it. And note that because you have worked so faithfully and so well, I will give you greater responsibility, greater authority, greater glory. The second one comes forward, and I was able to make five from what you gave me. And again, the king is pleased. He's not interested in comparing who made the most, but he is interested in seeing that his servant put what he was given to work. And that in putting it to work, there is an increase, even in these difficult conditions of a world that doesn't want to accept the authority of the king. And then finally, a third comes forward. I didn't lose anything. Note how different that sounds. One says, I put it to work and this is what I did. The second one comes forward and says, I put it to work, I tried as hard as I could, and this is what resulted. And the second one comes back and says, well, I didn't lose it. And the king doesn't care about him not losing anything. Because he also didn't gain anything. We often fall into the trap of thinking Jesus is a sucker. And God just wants to keep blessing us and blessing us and blessing us regardless of what we do with the blessings we've received. We just don't want to lose anything. And note what the example we have here. If that's how you're going to live, you'll end up losing it all. You think you're keeping everything safe, but what you're really doing is burying it, hiding it, and taking it out of service. That's the thing. When the Lord gives us his grace, when the Lord blesses us, it's never merely just for us. There's always a spillover effect into the world. And he expects that to actually happen. The Lord does have expectations for his servants. And that, you know, we, we don't like hearing that. I just want the Lord to accept me how I am and understand why I'm not moving. And he's sitting there saying, but I gave you the grace to move. I don't understand why you're not trying. I've given you the grace to do something. I don't understand what you're waiting for. And so it is that the king looks at this last servant and says, you didn't even do the bare minimum of walking down to the bank. Don't tell me you didn't lose anything because you lost all the interest you could have gained if you at least did that. And note here how the Lord is condemning that dangerous tendency that can creep into everyone where doing nothing is okay. 
And all of a sudden, when we fall into that trap, we find ourselves not even doing the minimum. You know, it's not that I'm praying less, it's that I'm not praying at all. It's not that I'm losing my temper sometimes, it's that I'm never even trying to control it. It's not that I'm pulling back from service, it's that I'm giving myself permission not to move. And so this idea of self-preservation, this idea of narrowly clinging to what I've been given, misses the point completely. Because it wasn't this man's to keep and to hide. The point of being a servant is not, to lose, is not making sure you don't lose what you've been given. The point of being a servant is to serve. And that requires a certain degree of activity. And this is why the king is so frustrated. What kind of servant are you that if I trust you with what you need to be good, you don't bother moving because you're afraid of losing it? How does that benefit the kingdom? How does that benefit me? How does this benefit anyone? And how does it even benefit you? Because in the end, that non-movement leads to you being cut off from me. And those little things, that little bit of safety you clung to, that little bit of status that you worked to preserve, oh, that's gone. And that will be given to someone else who will use it. What a remarkably sobering moment this is. And note again, the man is condemned not because he's committed crimes. He's condemned for laziness and cowardice and an inability to move. Even in a minimal way. And you know, that's the, that's the emphasis here. It's not that you failed to make money. It's that you failed to try. It's that you failed to move. It's that you hid what is mine, but it's not yours to hide. I wrapped it in a handkerchief. How many of you would do that with your pensions? Well, it's at home, uh, wrapped in a handkerchief. It's in a mason jar in the backyard. I stuffed it in the mattress. Note how useless that is. And so here the issue is, I trusted you with real wealth and real responsibility. And note, what you're really saying to the king is you made a mistake in trusting me. Because this last guy couldn't see in himself what the king saw in him. I trusted you as much as I did the other guys. It's not that I trusted them more than you. I trusted you all the same. And you're the one who decided that you can't be trusted. Note, note how, what the source of this man losing everything is. You know, and then, then there's the objection from everybody around, you know. Well, that other guy's already got so much. And the king says, what? That's the point. <laughs> He's proven worthy. And so he gets more, because this is not about everybody gets a ribbon, and this is not about everybody gets an equal share. 
this is about to the extent that you have trusted and served. One is like those guys that we saw in Revelation. And how did he live with what he was given? Continually placing himself at the service of his Lord. Continually praising his Lord in the quality of his service. And the other, he refused to get off the throne. He refused to move. The crown stayed on his head. It was never placed at the feet of the king. What a remarkable image. You know, and then the Lord gives us the big finish of the story, which is absolutely chilling. And all those guys who didn't want me to be king, oh, bring them all in here and kill them. You know, that is how this particular version of the parable concludes. St. Matthew's version is a lot more gentle. Um, but this version in St. Luke also says to that world, to those hearts that persistently reject me. Note, he's not talking about accidental or circumstantial inability to believe. He's talking about those hearts that are resolutely opposed to him, which may well be believers' hearts too, that refuse to accept the authority of the king. There will be a definitive and a final consequence for that. And we need to recognize that. And that this world which goes out of its way to oppose the Lord that likewise will not endure. And so note how this parable also sets us up for the vision of Revelation. Because in the end, what we're not going to be seeing are those who have no interest in the king. In the end, what will we see? All things will be completed in that joyful, continual praise of the king around his throne. And that's why, then, what we do here in the time we've been given is so very important. And in just a couple minutes, the king's going to be right here. And we're not going to see the mysterious creatures. We're not going to see the seven spirits of fire before the throne. We're not going to see the flashing of lightning or the or hear the peals of thunder, but he's going to be here, this same king, who has acquired his kingship. And he's going to call his servants forward because he hasn't come back yet. And we're going to stretch out our hands to the king. And he's going to place a lot more than 10 talents in our hands. He's going to place himself. And at the end of Mass, we're going to hear those words. Go. Don't go to bury what you've been given in the handkerchief of indifference or insecurity, but go, take what you receive, let it work within you, and let it work through you in the world. And when we put what we've been given to work in that way, we are those holy and active servants that the Lord loves and celebrates. And here at the shrine dedicated to Our Lady, let us never forget that at the very greatest moment of the history of the world, when the word became flesh to save us, there was one servant, a handmaid, who 
could be trusted with that infinity of talent from heaven, Jesus Christ. And she doesn't merely put him to work, she communicates him completely to the world. And she whom we celebrate as full of grace is always available to help us not merely preserve, but put to good use all of the gifts that we've been given by the good God. Amen.